Hello and welcome to the Compassionate Leadership Interview. I'm Chris Whitehead and my guest today is Ollie Hart, GP at Sloan Medical Centre, Director of Peak Health Coaching, Clinical Commissioning Lead, Social Media Influencer and Innovation Leader in Healthcare and Wellness. You can find Ollie on Twitter at OllieHart7. That's O-L-L-I-E-H-A-R-T-7. Welcome, Ollie. Oh, hi, Chris. It's lovely to be here. Thank you. With a CV like that, it's hard to know where to start. But can we start with the big picture? What's your view on the future for health and wellness in the UK? How can our healthcare system be made sustainable? Oh, goodness, that's a biggie, isn't it? But um, from my perspective, and it is just my perspective, I, I think it's about the relative value of, of how we prioritise things. So I guess I probably divide that in between how you think about the, the, the role the person plays and the role that the system plays in creating good health. And I think, and I'm not alone in this, I think there's a big movement at the moment to into realising that actually the way to, to generate really good health is for the person and the community they live in to take much more of a lead. I think we're realising through lots of studies over many years that the actual amount that healthcare contributes to our health and the formal process of delivering it is probably much less than we thought. So I think we probably need to get better at allocating our resources more effectively and focus on that building, uh, you know, building the role the person plays themselves uh, and particularly how their community can help to support them to do that. And I think part of the problem, the sustainability bit, is that we're all quite stressed at the moment because I think we're focusing the wrong place. I think we spend a lot of time and energy I, as a GP, focus on a very medicalised model. And, you know, it's probably the minority influencer. Uh, there's nothing more stressful and sort of, dis, you know, distress creating by by working in an area as hard as you possibly can, but unable to achieve good results because you're just not, not covering the whole picture. And I think when you do work more closely with and build the person's skills you're working with, you develop much stronger relationships. And I think those relationships are really important in recharging us. So the sustainability comes from, doing the right things in the right ways, I think, Chris. Talking of the pandemic, primary care has changed massively out of necessity during the pandemic. Are there some changes that you would retain? Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely prompted rapid changes. There's nothing like a real shake-up, isn't there, to make you re-look at your systems, you know, and some of the things we've done around innovative access, you know, video conferencing and so on. And But I think just our ability to try and think about how how effective we're being and, you know, obviously within that, we've had to, people have had to take more of a lead in what they've been doing because we've been unable to work in our normal way. And in some ways, that's really, really stressful for everybody. But in a lot of ways, it prompts a little bit of a, a, a shake up. So, you know, silver lining, there's always a good side to these things if you look for them, isn't there? <laughs> Sorry, I'll just say one more thing we're realising mm. that. Uh, you know, with the vaccine program, for instance, you know that uh, that our response across the city in Sheffield actually has been a very community-based response. You know, you've seen volunteers working hand in hand with the healthcare professionals and the, the teams working really closely together across GP practices, and that that sense of collaboration and communities working together—that's uh, a legacy I, I really hope we hold because that that I think sets us up really well for the future. Turning to health coaching, you started your career as a GP. At what point did you take an interest in health coaching? That's a good question, Chris. I, 
do you know what? I've I've always been quite a performance focused person. I, you know, I sort of I always enjoy sports and even uh, <laughs> properly card games and whatever. You know, a, a healthy competitiveness and and with with my career and with 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 medicine, I've always been interested in stuff that helps you to perform well. And you know, I, I love medicine. I've really enjoyed medicine. But I think what I've discovered across my career is that what I thought was the most effective stuff, so you know, being really clever about the medicines and being really clever about some of the technical science, which is sort of where you start, hasn't been quite as effective as I thought. And what I've discovered over time is that um, the skill sets that I've learned to help people to take more control on their own healthcare, to understand their condition mm. um, and to sort of take on a lot of the uh, healthy behaviours that support them themselves, understand their own medicines, all that sort of thing. It's been far more effective. So I, I learned a lot of this in the pain clinic, actually. I, I was a GP with a special interest in the chronic pain clinic. And in that situation, people were living with a really, really difficult, you know, living with longstanding pains, really tough and really hard. And we didn't have a lot of technical solutions, to be honest with you. Uh, so we learned to get really good at coaching people with how to cope with it and how to live their life around their pain to so expand the capacity of their life. And in, in effect, by doing that, minimise the effect the pain had. And so that really honed my coaching skills. And I think from there, I've just got more and more appreciative of how effective coaching is just across the board. Uh, and and I, I love it. it it's, it's really uh, enhanced my work and my relationships with patients. And that, that's all important, isn't it? Having good, strong therapeutic relationships is really recharging for me. Yes, I was talking to Stephen Trezia of uh, Compassionomics fame a few uh, interviews ago, and and he he was pointing up the the crucial importance of that relationship between practitioner and patient in patient outcomes. I heard that interview, and I loved it. And the bit that really stuck in my mind was when he said, uh, "If you don't have if you don't have a good relationship with your patients, all you're left with is just a really stressful job." <laughs> I thought that was great. Would you like to explain to our listeners how the services that you're involved in through your health coaching practice, that's health coaching, patient activation and social prescribing, relate to one another? Yeah, sure, Chris. And thanks for the opportunity. That's, um, I mean, to me, there's a really big area here, isn't it? This kind of shift towards a more personalized, person-centered approach. Um, and it really, it really is a mindset shift. But there are uh, certain skills and tools that enable you to do that. And the, the things that I've been drawn to and really focus on are, are I think, the most effective tools to achieve this. So um, the coaching skill set, enabling people to perform at their best uh, it's pretty well established, isn't it? You know, you don't, you don't find many premiership football teams that don't use a coaching approach to get the best out of their players or even large businesses that don't take coaching approaches to to get the best out of their staff and teams. And I, I just think we're really missing a trick if if we don't harness the resource of people themselves, patients, clients, whatever you want to call people, um, and the communities and the peer support opportunities within that. So coaching skill sets are to me, the best way of doing that. And they're, they're many, merry and vary, but they're very specific. And this is a science we can get really, really good at. The activation bit is then, okay, if you take these coaching skills, I think what we appreciate is that people need different things at different times. So activation is part of a cluster of things. You know, you can talk about motivation interviewing and stages of change or level of capability. There's a range of ways of carving it up. But if, if you appreciate that you can focus the type of skills people need at that point, uh, the type of coaching they need at that point, you can be far more effective and, and far more efficient, really. You know, you don't, you don't waste your time doing the wrong thing to people. And then the social prescribing, I guess, is to me around the context. 
a lot of people like to sort of put all the focus and blame on the individual and say, well, if they're not behaving or they're not doing stuff themselves, then it's all their fault. And But what we, we know is that it's very, very dependent on your context. So social prescribing in its kind of superficial um, sort of context is, is how you connect people to stuff in the community that help them to, to maintain good behaviours and you know reduce isolation and all the things that are harmful. But in its larger context, I think it's a focus on on growing a community place that allows people to have equitable um, access to support. Uh, and that will be different in different contexts, won't it? You know, it's in, in, in the leafy suburbs of Sheffield, it can be quite different to perhaps, you know, um, you know, a, a, a really tough housing estate with lots of tower blocks in a different part of the country. So, you know, your context and what you have access to is really important. So I think those three things just sort of work really well together for me and how you think about your approach, how you refine it and then how you uh, make it relevant to someone's context. How do you see the role of GP practice within the community? Do you see it as a hub of the community or? Yeah, we're constantly, um, I think general practice is constant. What's its place? Yeah, it's a really good question. And we are constantly redefining ourselves. I think one of the beauties of general practice is we're very nimble. We, we respond to need. We respond to kind of changes in evidence base. Um, but we're really connected in with our communities. And I think at our essence, we are, we are community-based organisations. And I think as we become more aware of the value of this you know the role the community plays and people supporting each other and you know just just the, i think we've like i say i think we've overvalued the role medicine has to play it, it's very very important but it sits in this much more significant context of people's community and place and and how that creates wellness for people so I think general practice, as it's evolving, is realising this. And we are working how we can do that. And how do we embed medical stuff with the community stuff? What what roles do we need? We're expanding our teams to have link workers, to connect people to community roles, to have health coaches, to have care coordinators that try and make sense of all the complexity for people. And then within that, of course, we insert all the kind of medical, technical skills and medicines and stuff that we, that we know as well. So we're, we're trying to combine it all as best we can. To be the devil's advocate for a minute, health coaching sounds a bit like an unaffordable luxury. What would you say to that? Yeah. Well, I, I agree. And, and I, um, you know, I, I do a lot of teaching and training in health coaching now. And, I, and of course, you know, the worst thing for people is they feel if they feel they're being taught something that's as an add on or they just, you know, creates an extra pressure to sort of add on top of everything else that you do. Um, and I'm, I'm really aware in my own practice and talking to lots and lots of professionals, you, you just can't do that, you know, one thing we just can't do, Chris, is make more time. You know, we have we have the time that we have. And for me, this is about kind of making judgment calls on how you spend that time. Do I spend my time on uh, exploring the reasons why, um, you know, someone's really struggling to manage to sleep at night or d- deal with the stress in their life with their children at home or, you know, make space to just be able to understand their medicines, that sort of thing? Or do I spend time, you know, talking to them about a, a prescription for a, a new medication, you know, or, or trying to sort of think about starting something very technical? The thing about time is is that the time we have with the patients is very limited. You know, I get 10 minutes, 15 minutes, but the time that I can add into the picture is the time that enables someone to do stuff in their own time. So if I have a 10 minute consultation with someone and, and then set someone going on a pathway where they start to explore stuff and think about it themselves outside the consultation, I'm making time. I know everybody has, not everyone spends all the time thinking about health and we're, you know, having a health burden can sometimes be a real problem, but 
in my experience, people do, if you set them off and you give them permission and make them feel confident and, and so they've got the skills and knowledge to do it, people will pay attention to looking after themselves. You know, it's quite central to what <laughs> to our lives, isn't it? So to think that it's only me that can influence that is crazy. And then the more I can set them off doing useful stuff, the better. Do you think health coaching and patient activation can reduce health inequalities or will it make them worse? Yeah, I, th- I think there's a risk it could go either way, to be honest with you. It's so easy to widen health inequalities, isn't it? In a, in a way, you've always got to be mindful of it because, um, you know, that inverse care law, you know, p- people, it, it, it's so easy for people to who are capable and confident to suck up new stuff. Mm. Um, so we have to be mindful of it and we have to be equitable about how we distribute our resources and support, I think. But what the coaching approach and the activation approach has taught me is that the worst thing you can do is is, is the wrong stuff. So, you know, it, very well-intentioned, we'll often sort of layer knowledge and information on people who are in the best intention of the world are just not ready for it. And that's harmful and it tends to overwhelm them more and actually do harm rather than good. So it slows down their progress. If you're clever and you understand what they need at that moment, that's going to be the best support for them to move on. You do the opposite. You absolutely maximise your 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 beneficial effect. Uh, so I think if this is done well and thoughtfully and carefully, you can narrow inequalities. But if you're clumsy, you can very easily widen them. So, I mean, a related question. Do you think that health coaching will be readily accepted by our uh, Black, Asian and minority ethnic communities or is there work to do there? I, I don't think this is a race related thing at all. In fact, I was with a, in a, co-produ- a fantastic co-production workshop yesterday uh, with, with a group, uh, you know, a, a really diverse multicultural group. Uh, and I think the language of coaching, the language of empowerment and self-control, autonomy, you know, being in control of your own destiny is, is a is a core human, uh, you know, uh, motivator. It's something we all search out, isn't it? I think certain communities have been exposed to to more adverse situations where they find it, you know, they've, they've, because of their very circumstances and their history, they've, it's often been much harder for them to uh, realise kind of the freedom of choices. But that's got nothing to do with ethnicity. That's just to do with their situation. Mm. And I think we should rally against that. You know, we should notice that and we should we should push back so that everyone genuinely has a level playing field. And that's not just about whether or not you can go to university or school or take exams. It's genuinely what enables you and, and, and enables your capability to um, you know, to have, have free choices. So let's turn to a practical example. You're instrumental in setting up the Graves Park Park Run. How do you integrate something like that into primary care? Yeah, that was great. I really, really enjoyed my part, my part in that. And, the, you know, the best thing about that was that I was involved in starting it off, but I'm no longer involved in leading it or, or really doing very much other than just turning up to, to enjoy the community and the run sometimes. If, I think if you do things right, they take on a life of their own. And that's exactly what happened with the Graves Park Run. It didn't, it, you know, you, you, you do need to understand a little bit around what creates cohesion and, and you know, you give someone a framework. So, you know, uh, an opportunity to use something like the scanners and to have a timed run, make it free, you know, make it near a, a coffee shop so people can meet afterwards. So you set a few facilities up, but then communities then wrap themselves into that, don't they? If, you, if you've done it right, that it, it takes on a life of its own. And that's what's happened with... Grace Park Run. Park Run is 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 a really you know I don't know if it was 
probably a lot of luck, actually. You know, I know Paul Sinton Hewitt set it up. Lovely guy. Um, and he says himself, you know, a lot of this just happened, you know, um, but they, they happened on a, on a real magical formula. And I think what they tuned into in part run was that it was it was not just about the running and the exercise. It was about the, the connection and you know, the sort of like the, uh, you know, it played a role in society, didn't it? To join people together and people give people a common purpose to help each other out. And I think that was probably a little gap in the market. Um, and they lucked in on that. Um, but when they realized that's what was going on, they've really, really emphasized that. that that's a great example of when things have just done done really well and then taken on further to really make it deliberate. I have a friend who's a social prescribing link worker and she's had to develop her own directory of potential providers. Um, NHS England's social prescribing initiative, they have a target of a thousand new link workers this year. Seems to lack some supporting infrastructure. Would you agree? Yeah, with I've got lots of friends who are link workers as well. And it's a, it's a it's tricky. It's a new role, isn't it? I, th I think what we're talking about here is reasonably novel and new. Us focusing on this being important is is new. And I think when it, whenever anything's new, there's always going to be a little bit of need for experimentation. Um, my experience of the link workers that have stuck their hands up to do this is that they're the sort of people that get this, and they are they're pioneers, really. You know, so a lot of them are carving mm. out their own ways. Uh, but undoubtedly, um, having some organised support definitely really helps. Um, there's a National Association of Link Workers now, which are doing a, a great job of connecting people together. And I, I know NHS England is, you know, uh, in parallel to setting this up, is also sort of setting up um, supervision and mentoring services for link workers and health coaches. But, it, you know, it's a dynamic situation. And I think sometimes you learn by doing, don't you? You know, if you think the whole thing through and only start when you've thought the whole thing out, that's probably not the best way. You sort of set some things in going and then you learn and evolve as you go. You you learn by doing. I'm a big fan of that. And I think that's probably what the NHS uh, and this experiment of personalised care is doing. It's, it's learning by doing. So, I mean, what, what we're talking about, I think, is work that's at the leading edge of innovation within healthcare. Healthcare is a domain that can be pretty conservative, not least because of a fear of litigation. But how do you create that environment that promotes innovation? I mean, innovation is a tough old thing, really, isn't it? You know, there's undoubtedly has to be a degree of tolerance of risk. And that's certainly to some degree a personality trait, isn't it? We're all a bit different. And learning to, to, to accept failure and to not getting things right is definitely a, an important aspect of it. And, but then, you know, sort of creating that culture where, it is okay to fail and you're not just always celebrating everything that goes right. Clearly health is quite crucial, isn't it? You know, when you get things wrong in healthcare, people lose their lives sometimes, you know, so it, it becomes very pertinent and uh, perhaps a little bit more crucial than making mistakes in other areas. So perhaps rightly the threshold for innovation is a bit lower. But having said that, we also know that if you don't innovate, you don't perform and you don't get systems that in the end do better and save lives. So it's a it's a really tough balance, isn't it? And I think as, as a group of a society, as a group of healthcare professionals, whatever, we need, we need to support each other to, to value innovation and the place that it has, but also to, to value the checks and balances we keep in place as well. So, you know, you need a, you need a mixture really, don't you, I think? At a personal level, do you have an intentional strategy to be heard and to influence the NHS and government, or are you taking opportunities as you arise? You seem to have become recently the BBC's yeah. go-to 
health and wellness person. I know. It's, 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 I, I think it's, you know, probably people look at me and think he's got a real Machiavellian drive to get sort of his face out there and stuff. And it's a bit of fun sometimes, isn't it, doing these things? Of course it is, you know. But I hope what I try to do is stuff that is useful in, in the general direction. Like I said, I think my sort of internal mission really is, is around uh, helping people to uh, perform as best they can, you know, for communities to function as best they can and for, it to, you know, for as many people to have that opportunity as possible. So I think when I see the opportunity to, to push that, I'll, I'll go for it. And I am a bit of a risk taker, so I'll stick my neck out there. Across my life, I've got plenty of things very, very wrong. Uh, and I, I might regret sort of being uh, overly familiar in the media. And I think, you know, you just have to keep honestly reflecting on whether or not what you're doing is, is really useful in your underlying mission uh, or, or whether actually you're just doing it because it's, uh, you know, sort of feels like a good thing and it's, it's, it's fueling your ego. So it's good to keep checking that, I think. So I suppose I probably do have underneath it all a sort of underlying strategy and intention, but I don't think it's particularly deliberate. It's just a sort of... Um, I suppose it's a strong sense of purpose, really. I think I'm very lucky that I've, I'm an optimistic person and I'm a quite a positive person. And I, and I sort of believe that if you stick to your guns and true to yourself, then then generally things come out okay. And my experience so far, I've been lucky enough for that to happen. So I'm sticking with it, Chris. Just out of curiosity, have you ever managed to put your finger on where your optimism comes from? One of the things I've, I've, I've realised more recently is, is that, you know, people talk about the, that internal dialogue, don't they? And, and very often, you know, people highlight they have a sort of self-persecutory, you know, sort of quite kind of critical internal dialogue. Um, and I think I've just, whether it's just luck or fortune, I've, I've always had a really positive internal dialogue. I think, uh, you know, I've always had an internal voice that's always kind of like supported me and been friendly to me. You know, maybe this is something about, you know, compassion for yourself, isn't it? And you know, so I, I've always had a, a positive voice inside and that's that's been a real asset. Well, no matter how hard and stressful things get, if you sort of hear yourself saying, well, you know, it's OK, you know, you can you can you can be easy yourself on that. You know, it was pretty tough. And, uh, you know, probably anyone in your position would have struggled with that or actually, do you know what, you, you, you can make that, you know, it's going to be, um, you know, give it a go. I think I think you'll, the experience will be interesting, whatever happens. You know, I, I'm very lucky with, with that internal dialogue. And I, I don't know if you can cultivate that. It's definitely something that's useful. And I think if you get a sense you're starting to hear that, then then listen louder and, and hear it hear hear that voice rather than the than the persecutory one. Let's move closer to home. You recently passed on your role as an executive on uh, Move More, Sheffield's 20-year physical activity plan, to two of your GP colleagues. Why did you decide to pass it on the battle? Well, you know, the Move More project is something I've had really close to my heart. Personally, you know, I've got children growing up in this city. I want them to grow up in a city that, that moves more because I think that's a really inspirational and, and effective way for a city to operate. But I also think that with all these projects, these long-term projects, you need to keep the energy fresh and you need to keep um, new people's ideas flowing through. So I, I'd had the luxury of holding that mantle for five years or so. And it felt like the right time to, to pass it on. Um, and Joe and Andy have taken it on, have given it a new, you know, a new injection of gusto and, and ideas. And I think that's just really healthy, isn't it? You know, if you're trying to take a leadership role, it's very important to know when it's time to bring other people in. Uh, and that, uh, you know, I'm really pleased with with Anna Lowe and, you know, people like Andy and Joe are just taking it on again. And it's We've got to keep keep sustaining these things, haven't we? You know, actually, a lot of these big long term changes depend on consistent and persistent energy, and and that has to be done as a team, I think. And how is Move More doing? 
Yeah, it's a it's a really tricky one, isn't it? Because um, the issue of measurement is always tough, isn't it? You know, what 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 do you choose to measure? You know, in in physical activity, do you do you choose to measure how many people are active? You know, do you choose to look at you know the people who are least active? Those those are the people actually we know who have the most to to gain. I can't remember the exact figure now, but there's a huge, surprisingly large proportion of people who do very little physical activity, le- less than 30 minutes a week. I think it's around about 20, 25%. You know, it's staggering, isn't it, to think that they, you can do less than 30 minutes of physical activity in your week. You know, that's just walking around outside the house, inside the house, you know, but whatever you're doing. So people are, you know, there's a lot of people who are very immobile. So, and just getting them a little bit more active um, makes a massive difference. So, I understand from people like Professor Rob Copeland that we are making good progress. We, we, when we set up the last Move More plan back in, in 2015, we were looking ahead to 2020 and we sort of said, oh, well, by 2020, we'll be the most active city in the country. And I think that sort of like competitive edge sort of appealed to us at the time. Uh, but, but I think what I'm realising is that I'm not sure that's that useful. You know, it, it, it is all about us collaborating together, isn't it? Just to, just to sort of like nudge ourselves forward over time. And uh, I think the, the new Move More plan is going to focus a bit more on a sort of more equitable approach. So, you know, the people that really need it most in the communities that have the least opportunity to make it easy for people to be active, uh, that, that we focus on that. So, that uh, you know, as a whole city, we uh, we all move upwards together. Um, and I, I, I like that ethos. So, Chris, it's a long-winded way of saying I'm not sure if I can fully answer that, but I think we're making massive progress in how we think about it and how we um, organise um, our support, and, and that's that's definitely very evident. So you're doing a lot of leadership within your own practice and through the media. Are you disseminating what you're doing more widely within Sheffield, and how is that working? Yeah, I mean, leadership's a funny thing, isn't it? Really, you know, sort of what what makes someone a leader? In a way, we're all leaders, aren't we? We're all we're all seeking to influence people around us to some degree. I mean, I, I work as a as a primary care network leader and and uh, as a clinical director and and a part of a cohort of fifteen people like that in the city. And I think we all um, we all rub off each other really well. You know, we've we've learned some stuff together. And I think one of the things I've really appreciated is how we all mutually support each other. So absolutely, I'll try and share what I think is helpful and supportive, not so much in terms of advice or specifics, but more just in trying to give people confidence and to give people sort of, you know, the the, the backup that it's okay to make a tough decision and, you know, see how it plays out. I think what pe- people are very, very thoughtful about what they do generally, you know, and, and as long as you're being thoughtful and you're doing things for the right reasons, you're going to make mistakes. Things, Some things are not going to work out, aren't you? So making sure people feel that they've got that backup when that happens and that it's okay. So I try and disseminate that that culture of support and to some degree experimentation, but, um, you know, mutual learning, reflection, uh, you know, so not taking things too personally, uh, you know, that those sort of principles, you know, they're probably the coaching principles, to be honest with you, really, aren't they? You know, that those coaching principles of not telling people what to do, but helping them to find how to uh, think through it well for themselves, you know, to, to think well for themselves and, and let that lead into actions that are most relevant to them. So I think that's how I try and disseminate leadership as I see it, by by just supporting those, you know, the, those principles to thrive. Now we come to the questions that I'd like to ask all my guests. And let's start with what does your self-care regime look like? 
I know that like Professor Rob Copeland of the Advanced Wellbeing Research Centre, you're a keen cyclist. What else do you do to keep yourself fit? And yeah, so I, I try and avoid going cycling with Rob too much because he just he just makes me he burns me into the ground. Um, all sorts, you know. It's just I mean, it's lovely just to walk walk with the kids and the family, isn't it? You know, we we're so lucky to live on the edge of the Peak District, and that that really is just a it's a mental resetter, isn't it? When you go out there, you know, it's like in the snow now or when it's in the summer, you know, all the peaks are beautiful at every time. So I, I, I love fell running just to get out in the mud and, and get my head above, just out and above the sort of like the, the drudge of everyday life. Just get up there in the hills is great. And I like mountain biking, anything really, nothing, nothing too serious, just something just to sort of, you know, get your heartbeat going and, and just enjoy it really. Is there a person or experience that has inspired you on your journey? Yeah, you know, I, I deliberately didn't think too much about this one before because it's quite nice in the moment to think, isn't it? I mean, sometimes these things happen at the right time, don't they? I, I read that book by um, Atul Gawande called Being Mortal. I'm sure a lot of people have read it would have made a big impact on them. And it happened to me just after my dad had died. And that book's to do with, you know, our mortality and, and the fact that even as doctors, we, we can't... Um, you know, we can't get around that. And as, as people, we have to accept that. And But how you try and maintain someone's autonomy and quality of life right to the end. It was such a beautiful book. And it just, it resonated so well for me at that time that it had a big impression on me. So that's the, that's the thing that comes to mind. It's a lovely book. Is there any other book, podcast or video you'd recommend to aspiring leaders? Well, I, I love Rachel Stern's podcast, Fairest Health. I think that, that's great. I like listening to podcasts. I mean, I, I like I like Rangan Chatterjee's podcast. Um, I, I'm a big fan of his Four Pillars of Health. I think it's great. I enjoy listening. To, you know, sometimes I enjoy listening to podcasts of completely non-health stuff. There's one called The Knowledge Project. Uh, it's Shane. I can't remember his second name now. But he interviews people that have just kind of, you know, uh, leaders in all sorts of different areas. So, you know, he might interview a poker player or he might interview a hedge fund manager or something. And you, th- you start listening to it and you think, this has got nothing to do with my, my world, but actually the, the, the insight into people who have done pretty well in their field uh, and they've got a lot to share. It's just so interesting. And you, you end up just getting sucked into sort of, you look, you, at the end of it, you sort of think, oh, wow, you know, that, I hadn't thought that was going to be interesting to me, but it, but it really was. Uh, and it keeps, you, keeps your curiosity in life going, doesn't it? I think that's, that's really important. And uh, finally, what advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? <laughs> Do you know what? I, I really wouldn't give myself any advice. But one thing I think in the world, I think there's too many people giving people advice. Uh, I think, um, you know, it's a genuine adventure, isn't it? And you have you genuinely have to make your own mistakes. I mean, you know, it's good to learn and choose the people you're going to listen to, but uh, I, I wouldn't go back and give myself any advice. I just kind of, uh, I just let myself make all the same mistakes again and enjoy the journey. Well, Ollie, I've really enjoyed this interview. Lots of clues here to a vision of a healthier nation and a more sustainable NHS. I do hope Matt Hancock and NHS England are listening. Thanks, Chris. That was a lovely interview. And thanks for listening to the Compassionate Leadership interview. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can find me at patreon.com forward slash Chris Whitehead. Email me about the show chris at damflask-consulting.com. You can order Compassionate Leadership, the book, on Amazon. And this episode was recorded by Squadcast in Sheffield. And the music was brought to you by 96 Back on CPU Records. <laughs> <laughs>